So I believe that the, the theme of 1 Peter is, is one of hope. Uh, specifically, it has to do with hope in times of persecution and difficulty. Knowing that hope is the theme of 1 Peter helps us to put what Peter says into context, and it helps us to understand the importance of his teaching. Another significant point, I believe, is that uh, we cannot miss to whom Peter addresses this letter. He addresses his letter to the elect exiles. The significance is significant for at least two reasons. Number one, it tells us to whom the letter is written. It says that it's written to God's children, to Christians. Secondly, it's very important because it dismantles the notion that is out there that God's people will not suffer. I believe this little book has incredible importance for the church today as well because we live in a world that lacks hope. We live in a society that claims that no one has the right to make truth claims, that there's no such thing as one statement being more true or more right than another. Our society teaches that there is no such thing as what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. The idea that there are indeed those things which are true can be proven to be true and, when believed to be true, have great impact upon our lives. Without truth, one is left floating, with nothing to cling to, especially in times of difficulty and crisis. The relativism that, is, that this is has also crept into the church. Along with relativism comes a loss of hope. And so, there are many, even within the church, who are unsure of what they can hope in. Hope for the Christian isn't some sort of morbid, I wish I may, I wish I might type of thing. Christian hope is what Hebrews 11 refers to. It's grounded in a past reality and a future promise. Many of the early Christians, uh, followers of Christ, ended up being exiles. They ended up being driven from their homes. They were persecuted. Uh, and this book was written to them, and I believe also written to us. So we're going to work our way through this passage this morning, broken into the following four headings. Number one, we're going to look at a past reality. Number two, we're going to look at a future promise. Thirdly, we're going to look at our present hope. And we're finally we're going to look at our privileged position. Looking into the past is something that's not particularly popular in, in our society today. Uh, it's kind of seen to be in bad taste to, to dig around too much in the past. But for the Christian, this is something that is of incredible importance because our faith is grounded on something that happened in the past. It is according to the mercy of God the Father that any of us are Christians at all. The doctrine of original sin teaches this. It teaches that Adam sinned, and when he sinned, he sinned as the head of the human race, and that because of his sin, we too are born into a sin nature, which leads us to the doctrine of radical depravity. Romans 5.12 teaches this simple truth. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
In Genesis 2, we have the account of God creating mankind and his command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17 says this, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The consequence of disobeying God is very simple, death. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death. The facts, according to these verses, are these. Number one, in or because of Adam, all mankind, including you and I, are sinners, giving us, therefore, a sin nature. Number two, because of this sin nature, we are eternally separated from God. This is called radical depravity. This doesn't mean that every human being is as corrupt and sinful as they possibly could be. That would be called utter depravity. But what it means is that we are touched. Every single part of our being, everything we do, is touched by sin. So you may ask, well, how come when the, the heading in my notes uh, is dealing with the mercy of God, why am I spending time looking at sin and death and original sin and radical depravity? So I spend this time, though, for two reasons. Number one, these two doctrinal truths are biblically true, in spite of the fact that they may not be popular. And number two, because without first understanding how sinful we are, we cannot understand how much we need mercy. Our passage tells us that our salvation is due to His great mercy. Because of our sin nature, we're incapable of saving ourselves. We need God to intervene on our behalf. We needed Him to step into history and do something that would save us from ourselves, as it were. We are deserving of judgment because in Adam we've sinned. We've fallen short of God's standards, and we need mercy. Mercy that withholds the judgment that we deserve. So how does God extend mercy to us? He does it in, I believe, two very important historical events. Number one, as we dig into this, uh, I want to look at two important things, two significant, um, two, significant uh, two significant events, the first being his death. And as we look at that, I want to look at it as specifically as it relates to his divinity uh, and his humanity. So let me begin by stating something. There are certain doctrinal truths that are non-negotiable. In other words, they must be believed in order to be considered a Christian. One of those doctrinal truths is confirming that Jesus was both divine and human. Jesus was the God-man, meaning he was fully God, he was fully man. Throughout history, the church has made numerous attempts to try and push this away. Some of those still exist today. Uh, for example, Arianism or modalism as well. First, Jesus is divine. In order for Jesus' death to be able to save us, he had to be divine. Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit ensured that he was born without sin. If he hadn't been born without sin... His death would have just been another point in history where the Roman Empire attempted to eradicate some Jew that was creating problems for them. 
But as question 36 of the Heidelberg Catechism points out, this miraculous conception results in him being, quote, our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, he removes from God's sight my sin, mine, since I was conceived. Only a divine being could perfectly obey God's law, and only someone without sin could atone for our sin. That's mercy. Romans 5.12 tells us that because we are descended from the first sinners, Adam and Eve, we are also sinners from our conception. This means that no ordinary man could atone for our sins because we are tainted with a sin nature. On the other hand, though, our sin could not be atoned for by only a divine being. In order to fulfill God's law, the person dying had to be born a man because he was our representative. It is a past reality that Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Mary, conceived miraculously, died on a Roman cross some 2,000 years ago for crimes he didn't commit. The spiritual significance of this event is that it secured salvation for those who are God's chosen children. The second major event is the resurrection. Paul tells his readers in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, they were without hope. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is another one of those doctrines which are essential and which, if, in, if denied, indicate there is no salvation. If Christ has not raised, was not raised from the dead, then the faith that the Corinthians claimed to have was in vain. They were still in their sins. Paul is saying that the resurrection is essential to salvation. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then the obvious is true. He's still dead. And if Jesus is still dead, then Satan wins. And all that we believe and the faith that we have in the power of Jesus' death to save us is a great big fake. These historic realities, Jesus' death on the cross as the God-man and his resurrection from the dead combined together to secure our salvation is evidence of the great mercy of God to save sinners from eternal damnation. So this brings us to our, our future promise. The Christian hope is also grounded in something that's yet to come. The promise is an inheritance of salvation, salvation which is being guarded for us in heaven. Our salvation will be complete when we reach heaven. Even though we are truly saved here and now, we still live in a broken and fallen world where sin, sin still reigns and where Satan is still given a certain level of control. This salvation was bought for us through the death of Jesus on the cross. It's guaranteed to us through his resurrection. And according to Peter, it's being guarded for us in heaven. Verse 4 tells us that this promised inheritance is, number one, imperishable. Our inheritance is not something that's going to fade away. Uh, this isn't, though, the once saved, always saved, walk to the front, raise your hand, and all is going to be well. It's a guarantee that God will uphold his end, if you will. He's the author of our faith. He's the sustainer of that same faith. 
It's not because of anything that we've done that our salvation is secure. It is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that our faith is secure and that we are guaranteed an imperishable inheritance in heaven. We also see that this guarded salvation is undefiled. Our inheritance cannot be destroyed. It doesn't fade. It doesn't fall apart. It is secure for us because of Christ. It is pure. It is complete because of the great mercy of God. If it were left up to us, you know we'd make a mess of it. Our salvation is unfading. We ought to be excited every day about our salvation. Peter, quoting the prophet Isaiah, reminds his readers that even though humanity is like grass which fades and withers, the word of the Lord remains forever. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which ought to give us incredible hope. Hope in the fact that God the Father promised that our salvation was purchased by the death of His Son and the security that our salvation is as secure today as it was when the day we were led to accept it. Which brings us to our current, our moment in time right now, our present hope. So how does the fact that our faith is rooted in historic events give us hope here and now? Consider the context of our book. The historic audience of Peter's letter were exiles. They were driven from their homes and all that was familiar to them because of their faith. A faith that was grounded in past realities, initiated by God the Father and guaranteed by the same Father to be held completely for all who are His. In verse 6, Peter writes, In this you rejoice. In what? in the hope that our present reality, because of the salvation purchased through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this brings us to rejoicing in the face of trial. And there's two reasons why we can do that. Number one, our future hope is secure. Because of the hope that is within us, hope that our purchased salvation is secure and that our inheritance is secure, permits us to rejoice in the face of trial. If we are God's children, we can rejoice even when times are difficult. We can rejoice because we have inside information. We know that these trials are only temporary. We know how the story ends. There's a stark difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is the result of human reason. Optimism looks at what is, what has been, and then it posits or guesses what therefore will come to pass. Where hope, on the other hand, is grounded on something that is done or promised outside of ourselves. Optimism is something that we ourselves have a level of control over. But hope is completely outside of ourselves. The difference between optimism and hope is incredibly important because it reveals to us why there is often such hopelessness in the church today. Because of our sin nature, we are inherent do-it-ourselfers. We do not like to have anyone else do anything for us. Why? Because this will give them a level of control over us. 
We want to be the masters of our own destinies, if you will, where we're going and how we're going to get there. So how does a do-it-ourself attitude affect our hope in the future, especially in the midst of trials? Tell me this, when does it feel that we have the least amount of hope in the midst of trial? When does it, uh, if our optimism is what we're relying on, we're relying on ourselves. If we're hopeful, on the other hand, we're relying on God because of what He's already accomplished and promised through the death and resurrection of Christ. As Christians, we are to see our time on earth as temporary. We're to see ourselves as pilgrims passing through, and we're to see life as a journey towards the blessed hope promised to us in Christ. We're to be like Christian, the main character in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. See, once Christian entered by the wicked gate, things didn't get all better. Instead, there were many, many challenges along the way. Michael Horton cautions Christians to not be settlers having arrived in the promised land or wanderers engaged in endless play, but instead to be pilgrims, not tourists out for a joyride, but travelers on our way to the eternal city. How we see our journey will affect how we travel. If we see this world as our home, we will become attached to it, and we will have a hard time understanding how God could allow trials to happen to us. 1 John 2, 15-17 warns, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And whoever does the will of God abides forever. Part of the process uh, used for purifying gold is to heat it until it melts so that you can get rid of the impurities mixed in with the melted substance. And so too, testing and trials melt down, as it were, the Christian in order that impurities can be removed and create a closer relationship with our God and our Savior. Our response to trials and difficulties will affect our relationship with the Lord. Do I grumble? Do I complain when hard things happen? Or do I cling to the promises of Scripture which assure me that God is in control? Romans 8.28 tells us this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for all those who are called according to his purpose. Continuing on, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We, don't, we love that passage of Scripture, don't we? That is until we have to apply it to ourselves. Our response to God in times of trial will be the direct response of what we already believe about God. Do you believe that God is a good God 
who always does what is best for his people and for his glory? As New Testament Christians, we also need to be aware of our privileged position. We have, number one, we have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the whole Bible. We have all that God desires to reveal to us. We don't need special words added to this. And we don't need to be looking outside for more. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, and, necess- and, sorry, and faith and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. All we need to know to be saved and to live and honor God is in Scripture and can be found there. Romans 119.105 says simply, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 tell us, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture teaches us everything we need to know about God and His ways. Scripture also lays out for us what is required for our salvation and for us to live in a right relationship with God, the God who saves us. The Old Testament prophets didn't have the complete canon of Scripture. They knew the promises of God. They saw them laid out, in the first, especially in the first five books of the Bible. But they wondered how all this stuff was going to happen. Even the people of the first century church didn't have all that we have as far as the canon of Scripture. They had the Old Testament, and some of them had the writings of the apostles, but none of them have what we have in its current form. We're privileged to have this. We ought to guard it against using or viewing God's Word lightly. The fact we have God's Word in its completed form ought to give us hope. Because we don't have to worry that there's something else out there that we're missing. It's all there. We just need to look. We need to find it. We also have the immediate presence of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. I believe that because God is eternal and unchangeable, that the Holy Spirit was very much present in the Old Testament. For instance, Genesis tells us that he was present during creation. But his activity was very different in the Old Testament. 1 John 15 teaches, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples that the world is going to hate them. But he promised them in chapter 14 that the Holy Spirit would come to teach them and remind them of the truths they had in order that they would not fall away in chapter 16. The Holy Spirit teaches us the truths of Scripture, truths we are unable to understand without the Holy Spirit first opening our eyes. We are unable to be saved without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. And we're unable to enjoy the fullness of our salvation without the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sins and drawing us near to God. This ought to give us hope because we can have the confidence that God hasn't just left us on our own to try and figure out how to get it done. So what is our hope? I believe that it's captured very well in the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. It asks, 
What is your only comfort in life and in death? Hear the answer to that, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What a beautiful hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for books like First Peter that uh, promise us hope because of what's done and what's promised. Father, I pray that as your children that we would cling to that hope, that we would cling to the promise, we would cling to the truth of what you have accomplished through the death of your Son and his resurrection. Father, I pray that as we go forward this week that you would make us lights in our community. I pray that you would make us a blessing to those that we, we rub shoulders with, and I pray that you would help us to, above all, to bring honor and glory to you in the things that we do and say. I pray these things in your precious name. Amen.